Thank you, Kevin. A special thanks to our AV team for David and Antonio and also Will, who's here to help us this morning. We, What can we say? We said it so many times, but we miss you all dearly and just want you to know. Uh, in particular, every Saturday evening, the elders get a chance to meet online and pray, and we are actively praying um, that the Lord will give us the opportunity to see you face to face. We, we miss you deeply. We love you. Um, but we know that God is doing a good work, um, even as Peter mentioned and as Kevin has prayed uh, and the testimony of God's word. The Lord is doing something we don't completely understand. But he is good. He is faithful. He is true. He is the God of his word. And when this is done, we will all have cause to really praise him and rejoice and, and to do so face to face, embracing one another. Well, this past week, I read an article by James Hamblin in The Atlantic that very accurately, I think, described COVID-19 as a disease of uncertainty. A disease of uncertainty. And this one word, uncertainty, very accurately, I think, describes or sums up much of COVID-19's effect on our world and on our lives. And whether you've been waiting in a line for hours at Costco or in front of TJ's or a Safeway, or whether you're working in the healthcare industry, or you're at home, or you're waiting for an unemployment check, uncertainty has become in many ways, from a human perspective, our new reality. And sadly, what we are increasingly seeing in our news is how poorly most of us, including many of our leaders, are prepared to deal with uncertainty, especially for extended periods of time. And I, for one, am one of those, as far as struggling just to deal with the uncertainty that comes in this time and this age and for an extended period of time. But the good news of God's word is that though these may be uncertain times for many, they are not uncertain times for God. And because of that, they are not uncertain times for his children. And this is because the Lord is indeed king. And in Jesus Christ, his kingdom has come. And everything that we are experiencing right now, whether we understand it or not, it's all part of God's plan and preparation, very specifically of his people, just like the Exodus, for Christ's return and the coming of his kingdom once and for all according to his word. And brothers and sisters, I emphasize this a little bit because when things are crazy and things are uncertain and we're scrambling just to get through the day and our schedules and our world and everything that's set up has been turned upside down, it's very easy to lose sight of the eternal perspective that God has given us to take care of us and to love us. And that eternal perspective is ultimately all of these challenges and all of these things are part of the preparation for an eternity with Christ. 
these things are happening in many ways, just as in the Exodus when the plagues came. They are happening not just for the world, but very specifically for God's people as a preparation for the rest and the worship and the celebration that is to come. And I know that's hard to see, but that is ultimately the testimony of God's word, especially in times that are uncertain. And during my time here at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose, those of you who have come to me and sought counsel from me personally during difficult and uncertain times, you may have noticed that it's my practice to prescribe a daily reading of a gospel and of the Psalms. I'll usually tell you to pick a gospel and begin reading through it day by day, a chapter at a time, to focus your eyes on Christ. But I will also frequently encourage you to begin reading the Psalms, starting at Psalm 1, and to begin reading a Psalm in the morning, and perhaps even a Psalm in the evening. And for those of you who have struggled with fear and anxiety, you may recall that I frequently recommend the reading and meditation of a Psalm each night before you go to bed, especially for those of you who have struggled with things like panic attacks or anxiety or who have been through a traumatic experience and have found it difficult to sleep at night. That encouragement to fill your mind with the meditation of the Psalms each night before you go to bed. My reason for doing this is very, very simple. This is what the Lord himself prescribes in love for his sheep, especially during evil times. Our sermon this morning is Rejoice, the Lord is King. And it is an introduction to our series in the Psalms. And if you'll recall the scripture that Kevin read to us this morning, Ephesians 5.15, the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, writes... To the saints in Ephesus, he says in 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Isn't that something that we struggle with right now? Making the best use of our time? Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore, don't, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And similarly in Colossians 3.16, And it's interesting to note that both Colossians and Ephesians were written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest. These are referred to as the prison epistles. Colossians 3.16, the Lord through the Apostle Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Now, clearly at all times, but especially during difficult and uncertain times, when trials and tribulations and sorrows come our way, the Lord's provision and protection for His people are hearts and minds and lives that are filled with the Spirit of Christ 
and that are filled with the word of Christ, especially the Psalms. And throughout the history of Israel and the history of the church, the Psalms have played an essential role in the Spirit's care for God's people, especially in difficult times. And the Psalms have played a special role in the people of God in the Spirit's preparation for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is in no small part because the Psalms show us regardless of the time and place we live in, that the certainty and the hope and the joy of God's people is nothing less than the truth that the Lord is King. So before we return to our study on Ephesians, and yes, my friends and brothers and sisters, we will get there. But before we return to our study of Ephesians, my desire is to heed Christ's command in Ephesians and Colossians by taking the next few Sundays to fill our hearts and minds with the Psalms. And my intent here is to not only teach and admonish you with the Psalms as commanded by Christ himself, but my intent and desire here is hopefully to get you started on filling your hearts and minds every day with the Psalms. And I'm just going to recommend, by way of accompanying our series, to start at Psalm 1 and make it your practice, as the people of God and the people of faith have done for millennia, to read and walk through the Psalms each day. If you'll notice, what we've done as part of our praise team is we have been intentional in reading a Psalm, starting at Psalm 1, Each time we begin our service. And we're now, at least to my recollection during my time here, on our second round through that. And so my hope is, is really to get you started on that. And so that the Psalms ultimately will be a source of certainty and joy in your life in these uncertain times. It will be a rock for you and it will be a way in which you can walk wisely redeeming the time and be filled with the Spirit of the Lord even as the Psalms and the words of the Psalms and the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ guard your heart and mind and prepare you for the coming of the King and put sense and allow you to think biblically of everything that we are walking through at this time. And this morning, where we're going to begin is with an overview of the Psalms. Lord willing, next week, if Christ doesn't come yet, we hope to get to Psalm 23 as the start, and then we'll go through some of the other Psalms as well to give you an overview of the Psalms. But this morning, I want to begin with an overview of the Psalms or an introduction to the Psalms. Now, if you have your your Bibles... Okay, and, and we'll show you where it is. If you were to open up your Bibles and just open it up in the middle, you'd probably come to... Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And if you go a little bit further back, see if I can get the right direction on our AV here. If you go a little bit further back from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll come to the Psalms. As we look at our Old Testament, where the Psalms are, and we see where the Psalms fit in, in our English Bibles, our Psalms come after the histories. Our Bible begins with the Torah, the instruction of the Lord, or the law, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which lays the foundation of the Lord, His character, His word, His creation, and His plan of salvation for His people. 
And then in our English Bibles, we get to Joshua and Joshua and from Joshua all the way to Esther, Nehemiah and Esther. Our English Bibles walk us through the history of Israel. Now, these are also considered to be prophetic books because they are assembled and put together by the prophets of Israel. But they provide a narrative of the history of Israel. And then as you come to the end of that narrative of the history of Israel, from the entrance into the promised land, to the exile, and to the return with Nehemiah, we come to what's referred to as the wisdom books or the praise books. Now those are contemporary labels. Sometimes these are referred to as the writings. But essentially we come to that place, Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And these make up what's referred to as the wisdom or the poems or the songs or the songs of praise of God's people. And a quick glance as you go through, as you go through the book of the Psalms, what you'll see and what's pretty clear as you look at those subtitles, a Psalm of David, a Psalm for the choir director, a Psalm to be accompanied with with stringed instruments. You'll notice that what we have before us is a collection of songs and poems. And for many of us, when we think of the Psalms, we think of King David, David and Goliath, the David who is really, from a human perspective, the climactic king of Israel until Jesus comes. The man after God's own heart. And we often refer to these psalms as the Psalms of David, commonly. But a closer look as you go through these psalms and you look at the titles that have been added, it reveals a collection of 150 poems and songs that are not only from King David. In fact, he's responsible or credited with 73, less than half of the 150 psalms that we have collected here. But these psalms, these 150 poems or songs, are also from a variety of godly men, including Moses, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and also Ethan. Men whose lives and writings span approximately 900 years in the history of Israel, from approximately 15 or 14th century BC all the way to 500 years before the birth of Christ. And as you read the rest of your Bible, you will see that even though there are a variety of human contributions to the Psalms, the real author of the Psalms is the Lord Himself. These are undeniably His God-breathed songs. The songs of the one true King who rightly rules over all things. The songs of the King who have been given to the people of the king. And this brings us to our first point this morning. The Psalms are the songs of the king who rightly rules over all things. The Psalms are the songs of the king who rightly rules over all things. Throughout the history of the church and over the history of the world, the Psalms have been cited used, quoted, sung in pop songs, and used in countless different ways, in many ways like the Sermon on the Mount has been used. 
whether the Sermon on the Mount was used by Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., these have universal themes which have attracted the hearts of many people, both in the church and outside of the church, for their beauty, for their universal themes, for their touching on the sorrows and the heartbreak of living in a fallen world. But it's not uncommon that we have stripped these in many ways from their true source. We fail to see the point and the direction where the Lord desires to bring us. These are the songs, not of a king. These are the songs of the king. This has always been the testimony of the people of faith. But no one testifies to this and to the message of the songs more clearly and more strongly than does our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus, along with the apostles, repeatedly refers and appeals to the Psalms as the authoritative, the inerrant, and the inspired written Word of God. There is no higher standard than the written Word of God, and the Psalms are part of the written Word of God. And in Luke 24, Luke brings us to the climax of the gospel. The resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. And in verse 36 of Luke 24, the crucified and newly risen Lord has just appeared in the midst of his disciples. And he comes to them and he commands them as they stand in disbelief to see his hands and feet. And he shows and demonstrates to them hands and feet, that in all likelihood what they are seeing are the places where they have been pierced and being nailed to the cross. And he commands them to touch him, to see that he is no ghost, that he is no vision. He is real, flesh and blood. He is risen from the grave. And he has come for them. And what is the disciples' response that we read? In verse 41 of Luke 24, we read that the disciples still could not believe because of their joy and amazement. The disciples could not believe their eyes. Brothers and sisters, there are things in this life that our minds cannot understand. There are things in this life that our experience cannot help us with. There are things in this life that our understanding and our knowledge and our intellect and our experience will ultimately betray us and bring us to a place where we fall short. And one of the places in particular that our minds cannot handle and that our minds will not handle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. So how does Jesus help? And how does Jesus come alongside and help his disciples understand what they cannot and what they will not understand? Does he have a debate with them? Does he go online and try and find for them a sermon or a blog? Well, in fact, our Lord and Savior does none of these things. And He doesn't even hold a vote 
and get them to gather together and say, well, what do you think, Peter? And what do you think, Thomas? Our Lord and Savior resorts to some very old-fashioned biblical counseling. Takes them to the Word of God. And in verse 44, he takes his disciples to the Word of God because where we fall short and where our minds are uncertain, the Word of the Lord is never uncertain. And what we need are the eyes of faith to see the King and the Kingdom of Heaven. And faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the Word of Christ. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 44. He says to them as they struggle to believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. And that he's there in front and that he is present in their midst. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we struggle with when times are hard in these uncertain times? The sense that Jesus isn't here with us. That he's left us to ourselves to sort all these things out in our own. Jesus takes his disciples to the word of the Lord. And he says, these are my, he says personal, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Scriptures referring to what he's just said. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he said to them, thus it is written. And that is a reference to the authoritative and inerrant word of God. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed In his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then in verse 48 he says. You are witnesses of these things. What things is he talking about? The things that are written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. The things which they are seeing before their very eyes. The crucified and risen Lord and King who is present in their midst and has returned to care for them and to open their minds and give them the faith they need to see Him for who He truly is. The Lord and King of all. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Hear the Lord Jesus as he shepherds his struggling disciples. He shows them and us. The Psalms are not simply a collection of nice Old Testament songs or poems to make us feel better about ourselves or our world. The Psalms are his words. They are the inspired and authoritative and inerrant words of God that Jesus personally came To give, and to live, and to fulfill. Why? Because they are the words and the songs of the one true king. Who reigns and who rules over all things. Including COVID-19, 
including your marriage and mine, including our lives, including our worst days and our best days. This brings us to our next point. I hope. The Psalms connect our paths with the Lordship and reign of God's Word. The Psalms connect our paths with the Lordship and reign of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, the propensity and pattern of our fallen hearts and our fallen world is to separate God and His Word from our daily lives. And I don't know about you, but that certainly, when times are uncertain or difficult or hard, it's certainly my struggle. The temptation in good times and bad is to put God in a corner. And we get to Him when we have time to get to Him. We have our financial advisors. We have our life and career coaches. We have our fitness trainers. We have the people we watch or see on YouTube. For every aspect of our life. And then we've got a piece and we've got a corner for the Lord and His Word. Somewhere in the mix of all those things. Where the Lord gets a piece or a part of our life. But the Psalms show us, as you begin to read through and walk through them, that as much as we try and separate the Lord from many aspects of our lives, the reality is that our lives and our world are never really separate from God or His Word. And that is because whether we're willing to admit it or not, He is indeed the Lord of all. And this, of course, ties to the psalm that we read this morning. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And he's a fool because there is a God, and he is Lord, and he is King over all. And when we function in that way, as if the Lord does not rule over our fitness, our finances, our work, our family, our marriage, our standing in the line at Costco for toilet paper, when we function in that way and we've forgotten the Lord, we're functionally acting as fools. We've forgotten that, in fact, He is there. In the same way that the Spirit was trying to show the disciples with the Great Commission, wherever you go, Christ and the presence of the Spirit is going to be with you. Now, by Jewish tradition, as you come to the Psalms, you'll see that the Psalms have been divided up into five books. And it's been suggested by John Calvin that perhaps Ezra the scribe, after the return of the exiles, may have been the one who played the key role in collecting and organizing the Psalms together. The Jewish explanation in the Midrash, a commentary of Psalm 1, says, quote, As Moses gave five books of the law to Israel, so David gave five books of Psalms to Israel. The implication here is that both the Torah, the five books of Moses, and the Psalms are essential to the life of God's people. But whatever and however the process is that these Psalms have been collected, what is very clear is that the order and the arrangements of the Psalms is not random. It's very intentional. 
The very first psalm shows the connection between the paths of all men and the word of the Lord. And it summarizes the paths of all men as either the paths of the righteous or the paths of the wicked. The paths of the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord or the paths of sinners and scoffers. And at the end, all men and all paths, they don't lead to God. They stand before the judgment of God. And what determines the judgment of God is what have we done with the word of the Lord. And in this way, Psalm 1 draws this direct connection between the paths of all our lives. Every minute, every moment, every second to the word of the Lord. As we come to the very last Psalm, 150, it closes with a final call for all of life to praise the Lord. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And as you read through the Psalms, what you'll see is that each book or division of the five books, it begins with the plight and paths of God's people. And each book and division ends with a doxology that blesses and praises the Lord, who reigns over all, forever. And so the end of book 1, Psalm 41.13, says... Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And the end of book 2, Psalm 72, 18 through 19, says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And as you come to the end of each of the books, book 3, book 4, book 5, each end with similar praises of the Lord. And from the plight of God's people to the praise of their king, the Psalms cover the entire range of human experience and emotion that come from living in a fallen world. And the beauty of the Psalms is how they connect the paths of God's people especially the trials and tribulations and the hurts and the sorrows and the sins of everyday life. The beauty of the Psalms is the way they connect these details of human experience with the glory and the love of the Lord and His sovereign reign over all things for His glory and for the good of His people. And it's something, brothers and sisters, that we struggle to remember. Psalm 56, 8. Psalm 56, a psalm where the psalmist is struggling with the problem of fear. When I am afraid. People are taking advantage of him. And what does he say in Psalm 56, 8? He says of the Lord, you have kept count of my tossings, my turning. And you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Here the psalmist in the face of of having difficulty sleeping and being troubled and being fearful and overcome with anxiety and fear. He is brought to the place where he meditates on the presence of the Lord, on the Lord keeping track of every tear he sheds and every sleepless night that he has, that the Lord is indeed present, that the Lord is keeping track and that the Lord does not forget. And what the Psalms do, brothers and sisters, as you read through them with the help of the Spirit of God, is 
They address the battle of the human heart that is confronted with living in a sinful and fallen world. The Psalms address the battle of the human heart. The battle of the human heart that has always been the battle of trusting that the word of the Lord is true. Every last word and letter of the word of God. That it is inerrant. That it is authoritative. That it is sufficient for our every need because it has been given by the Lord who is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient for our every need. And he is the Lord who loves and reigns and cares for his people perfectly. Even when my life and my family and my job and my world is turning out very differently from what I want or I expected or I hoped. This brings us to our third point for this morning. The Psalms show us that the Lord perfectly loves and reigns and saves according to His word and not ours. The Psalms show us that the Lord perfectly loves and reigns and saves according to His word, not our words. Psalm 22.1 opens with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now these words are familiar to us because they are the words that Jesus cried out on the cross right before he died. But they were first the inspired words and experience of King David given to him by Christ himself, the living word of God. And they were written approximately a thousand years before Jesus was born. But they are also the words that have echoed throughout the ages from the mouths of God's people as they wrestle with the very real experience of living in a wicked and fallen world that is hostile to God and that is brutal to his people. And as we read this psalm, I'm going to encourage you to go home today and read Psalm 22. As we read the psalm, we see that life is not going well for David. It's not the way he'd hoped. It's not the way he expected or anticipated for the anointed and chosen king of the Lord. And the immediate reality of David's life is far from exalted. The immediate reality of David's life in Psalm 22 was one of persecution, one of abuse, one of suffering, one of injustice, one of pain. But most painful of all, as you read through Psalm 22, is the sense and feeling that David has that he has been abandoned by the God he loves. But as we continue reading this psalm, we see that David comes to understand, in fact, that God has not abandoned him at all. And through all of this, the place the Lord brings David is to a place of persevering faith and confidence in the perfect love and reign and salvation of the word of the Lord. And this, of course, is the testimony, brothers and sisters, of the cross. 
Because this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the testimony of his salvation. And not surprisingly, brothers and sisters, this is the testimony of God's people. That the Lord chooses not to avoid the valleys of darkness, but he chooses to bring us through the valleys of darkness with the shadow of death. That he brings us through valleys where we are brought low, where we experience the injustices and the evil and the wickedness and the abuse of this fallen world firsthand. But his rod and his staff comfort us, and we need not be afraid because the Lord doesn't bring us through those valleys alone. He is there with us. And of course, nowhere do we see this more readily than on the cross. And yet, brothers and sisters, we know these are things that we struggle with, even as David struggled with them. If you and I were to write the story of our salvation, what would it look like, brothers and sisters? I suspect it would look very different than Psalm 22 or the cross. We, and maybe I should say I, would find a way to save myself that would not inconvenience my family or the members of this church, or anyone else, being the good Asian that I am, right? I would find a way to save myself that would avoid all pain and suffering for myself and those I love and those who are nearest and dearest to me. I would find a way of salvation where we could all live forever after, on Jerry Jones' yacht, or on a tropical island somewhere, where we could play video games for the rest of eternity together. But where ultimately, brothers and sisters, does that get us? Many times, brothers and sisters, we struggle to trust the Lord. Many times I struggle to trust the Lord because His plan is not what I want. Because I think I know better than the Lord does what is best for me and for this church, and for the elders, and for the deacons, and for my wife and my children. When we think this way, brothers and sisters, what we often refuse to acknowledge is that we are not the Lord. What we often fail to acknowledge is that our primary problem is not not getting our way. Our primary problem is getting our way. Our primary problem is our sin. Our primary problem, many times, is getting what we really want. And the only one who can save us from our sin and our deceitful desires is the Lord who perfectly loves and reigns and saves according to His Word and not according to ours. Brothers and sisters, that is the Lord and King of the Psalms, and that is the Lord and King of the Cross, and that is the Lord and King of God's Word, and that is the Lord and King of all things.
500 years ago, a young Augustinian monk was breaking beneath the burden of his complete inadequacy to save himself from his guilt and his sin. He had no assurance that anything he did or anything that the church had to offer was making his life any better or bringing him any closer to God. And he would confess later, quite frankly, he hated God. And he tended to think of God in a very similar way that he may have thought of his own harsh and demanding father as a brutal taskmaster and a punisher who was never satisfied. Quote, unquote, quote, Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. End of quote. But the good news of God's word is that the love of the cross and the love of the lordship of Christ is greater than our anger and our sin. And in 1517, while studying Romans 1.17, the Holy Spirit opened Martin Luther's eyes and showed him that through the eyes of the Catholic Church, through the eyes of his experience, through the eyes of his family upbringing, through the eyes of one of the best and brightest minds that the world has ever seen, through the eyes of all of these things, Martin Luther was seeing God and the gospel backwards. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through Romans 1.17, the Lord enabled Martin Luther to see that through the cross of Christ, through that suffering and through that moment, that seemed like the Lord had abandoned His Son, but had not. God had provided the gift of His righteousness that is received, not by faith in me or my works or what I am able to do. A gift of righteousness that comes from the cross, that is received by faith in Christ as the crucified and resurrected King and Lord of all. And as you know, it was this biblical understanding of the gospel that the Lord would use to help usher in the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, and a return to God and a biblical understanding view of the gospel, the true gospel. But brothers and sisters, what's often overlooked in the account of the Reformation and Martin, Martin Luther coming to the gospel is that for the two years prior to this, Martin Luther took an interesting journey. Martin Luther benefited from having a godly discipler, a man named von Staupitz, who perhaps had some glimpse into the torment of Martin Luther's heart. And so he shepherded Martin Luther and discipled Martin Luther and pointed him to studying the Bible. And in particular, he arranged for Martin Luther to teach at a seminary. And for the two years prior to Martin Luther coming to Romans 1.17, it was Martin Luther's task to translate and to study and to teach the Psalms. And he would teach those Psalms each morning to his students. 
6 o'clock during the summer months and 7 o'clock during the winter months. So we need not complain about the early morning for men's equipping. And it was in this way, brothers and sisters, that the Lord used the Psalms to prepare Martin Luther's heart for the coming of Jesus in his own heart. To prepare it for the gospel. And to prepare it for salvation from sin and from bondage to sin. And from bondage to the distorted gospel of the Catholic Church. And to bring Martin Luther to the foot of the cross. And to the reign of the one true king, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, throughout the history of the world, this has always been the effect of the Psalms on the hearts of the people of faith. And this brings us to our final point, our concluding point for the morning. The Psalms bring God's people to the glorious praise of their king. The Psalms bring God's people to the glorious praise of their king. The end of each book of the Psalms ends with a praise. And this is where we get the name the Psalms. The word Psalms is the Greek word psalmos. That is a reference to a song or a songs of praise. And it's tied to the Hebrew title of the book. The book of praises. The Hebrew word for praise is the word that you're familiar with a little bit. Hillel. And the praise of the Lord or the praise of Yahweh is the word Hale or Hillel Hale Lu Yah for Yahweh. Hallelujah is the final word of Psalm 150 and the final word of the Psalms. And brothers and sisters, this is where the Psalms brings us. And this is where the Lord who reigns and saves perfectly according to his word desires to bring each one of us. To a place through the valley of darkness and death that brings us to the praise of a God who loves perfectly, who saves perfectly, and who rules and reigns perfectly, not the way we understand, but according to his word. Brothers and sisters, we cannot praise him as Lord until we know him as King. I've shared with the elders my burden for the church, especially during these uncertain times, is that Jesus Christ would truly be Lord of this church and Lord of our lives. That has always been the battle. That has always been the struggle. Our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Our passion statement is to love God and people. Our vision statement is to plant churches. But brothers and sisters... If Jesus is not king of all of our life, that mission, that vision, and that passion statement, without Christ as king of our lives and every aspect of our lives, it becomes no different than the Catholic Church. It becomes a man-centered endeavor. But brothers and sisters, with Christ as king, 
the most uncertain of times becomes certain. And it becomes certain because of the gospel. With Christ as king. The most uncertain of times from a human perspective. Just like Psalm 22 and the cross. Is a stepping stone. To the hallelujah. Of a God who is most worthy. Of our love and our praise. And our worship. Brothers and sisters that is. My desire for each one of you. I know this has not been an easy season. I know that many of you are dealing with difficult challenges in the home and outside the home. But my encouragement to you in the days ahead is to pray to the Lord and come under the Psalms. Read them daily. Allow your heart and mind to be filled with these songs of praise. And allow the Lord to use them to bring you through the valley to the foot of the cross. And allow them to bring you to a place where Jesus is indeed king. Not of a part of your life. But the entirety of your life. And that like the Apostle Paul in his prison epistles. You too are able to say hallelujah. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus thank you. That you are king. Lord in the days ahead. Would you use the Psalms. To open our eyes and our hearts. To what our minds cannot understand. For what our hearts resist. Your perfect plan of salvation. Your perfect lordship. Your perfect kingship. Your perfect rule. And your perfect salvation. Not in part of our lives Lord but every part of the lives so that we too might sing hallelujah. In your name we pray, amen.